Thank you. Wonderful to be here at the United Nations. So what is it's good afternoon, Khuemidak, uh Botage, uh Bonjour, Guten Tag, whatever else languages I miss, but it's so wonderful to be here and actually it's wonderful to see such diversity. Because God made us all in his image. And then he reconciled us to him and to each other through the blood of Jesus. So we're family. And I'm off to Brazil in three weeks' time. And I go there, and they speak a different language. It's a different culture. The food is amazing. But I go there, and it's family. You know, we we go all around the world, and we meet family, uh, which is great because we've got all the world coming to us soon at the conference. So I encourage you, get out of your bubble and go meet people. Go meet your family. It is an awesome privilege to have family around the world. So yeah, I, I, I want to talk about something really important this afternoon. And uh, as I was preparing, I was reminded of being a, a young boy. And uh, I know parenting styles have changed, and probably not for the better in, in most cases. Um, but I'm sure many of you will identify with this. When I was a boy, at mealtimes, I had to eat what was put in front of me. Now, that was great when it was, you know, burgers and pies and bacon, you know. That was great. But when it was Brussels sprouts, cabbage, liver and onions, I I don't know what it is. I, I know some people love liver, but for me, I would sit and try and eat it, and I would I would literally gag as I was trying to eat. I've got, I physically can't eat this. No, you will eat what's put in front of you. And sometimes I would sit there for an hour and a half because I was stubborn. And I would be very creative on how I can hide food. You know, if my, if my parents, you know, went out to the uh, dining room or the kitchen for two minutes, it's like something went back in the pan or in the bin under some papers, you know. I'd do anything I could to get out of eating what they gave me. And I thought they were being cruel. I thought they were being horrible. Giving me food that was disgusting and then forcing me to eat it. And then, of course, that uh, old cliched line, I don't, I don't know how many of you have heard this, but we heard it in England a lot, you know, when you didn't want to eat it, and they'd say, you know, there are starving children in Africa. <laughs> you go, put it in a box and send it to them then. Maybe they'll enjoy it. I'm a father now, and I understand how difficult it is being on the other side. And I understand it's not hatred, and it's not a desire to control. It's not manipulation. It's because kids don't know what's good for them. If it was up to me, my diet would have consisted of burgers and hot dogs and bacon sandwiches and and pies and, and dessert. Black Forest Gato with cream. Every New Year's Eve, my dessert is this. Try this. It's chocolate cake with berries, with ice cream, and then cream. <laughs> and it's brilliant. But if, if it was up to me as a kid, I would, probably would have eaten that every day. My parents knew what was healthy for me, and they knew they had a responsibility to teach me to 
eat, take in what was healthy. They had an, a, a, a responsibility not to control me for the rest of, of my life, but to lead me and to teach me what was healthy and what was not healthy. And another thing that would happen is um, I was a Boy Scout. Any Boy Scouts? <laughs> and when, when, when I was young, there was a tradition in the Boy Scouts. It, it was called Bob a Job Week. Bob was a, a shilling, and it was like you would go around the neighborhood, knock on doors and say, are there any jobs you need doing? I'll do it for a Bob, which was, let's say, 50 cents. Basically, child slave labor. And the idea was you, you were raising funds for the scouts and for other things. So I would go around the neighborhood and, and you know, knock on a door, bob a job. Oh, yeah, come in and do this or mow my lawn or whatever. And, of course, often, you know, o more older people would offer you sweeties when you're there. And one of the things I was always told, not just don't accept sweets from strangers, but, like, like sweets, if you don't know where they come from, don't eat them. Yeah, if you don't know the source, I, be careful. I think that's even more of a case today. I mean, even people going out for a drink, don't let a stranger buy you a drink. If you see a drink, if, you, if you're out in, in, hopefully not in a bar, but in a restaurant, and there's a drink there, and you think, oh, there's a free drink, nobody's, but you don't know where it's come from, who's going to drink it? A friend of mine, this might disgust you, a friend of mine, we were playing, we were only little kids, and he saw, he saw um, a Coke can, an empty Coke can that was half full. He went, oh, somebody's left some Coke here. But it wasn't Coke. <laughs> it's like, we all know, right? Instinctively, you don't just pick up and consume something that somebody's left around. How many of you enjoy a chocolate cake? Okay, so if I made it, no. If Lindsay made a chocolate cake, <laughs> but if Lindsay made a chocolate cake and brought it in for you to share, who would want a piece? Right. If I brought in a chocolate cake and said, hey guys, you never guess what I found out on the street 10 minutes ago, lying by the side of the road, free chocolate cake, who wants some now? Now the reality is some of you are stupid enough to say, I'll risk it. <laughs> What's, got, what's this got to do with anything? Well, just as our physical food affects our physical bodies, so our spiritual food affects our spiritual selves. And we have to know what is healthy for us to consume. And God has given us leaders to help to teach us and leaders because most of us are too stupid to know what's healthy to consume. And we live in a day where, you know, um, in the Old Testament it prophesies, a day will come, says the Lord, when there will be a famine of the hearing of the word. It doesn't say there will be a famine of the word. It says a famine of the hearing of the word. And we're living in a day and age today where the word of God is more available than it's ever been before. When I was a kid, I would never dream that 90% of the population would wander around with the Bible in their pockets. But you pretty much do, right? Because it's on, on phones and it's on. And if it's, not on, if it's not downloaded, everybody's got access to the Bible at a minute's notice. So it's out there. 
and there's YouTube and Facebook and TikTok and Christian TikTok. My daughter introduced me to Christian TikTok. Surely that's a contradiction. But anyway, we can have access to messages. We can have access to to theology. We can have access to, to anything that we want at the click of our fingers. It's easier than getting a McDonald's. And the tendency is, when we're, especially if we're ill-disciplined or a little lazy or a little naive, is we go for what's quickest, what's easiest, and what tastes nicest, rather than what's healthiest. And out there, there's lots of tasty morsels. And Paul warned us about this. And you know this scripture, and you're all going to say this doesn't apply to me. But in 2 Timothy Four verse, uh, verse 3, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Okay, That's the sign of, of the last days. Paul promises a time's coming when people will get teach, teachers around them who will just give them what they, what they want. Parents who will just give their kids burgers and hot dogs and chocolate cake. And we go, well, no, I'm not like that. I don't have itching ears like that. But itching ears can express itself in so many ways. I was talking to a young man at our Bible college in Wellington a while back. And as he was speaking to me and he was very passionate, I said to him, you're a fan of Paul Washer, aren't you? And he said, yeah. How did you know? I said, I can tell. The way you talk. The way you, the, the way you it's just like, you, you want to be hardcore. You want to be this guy who just is like in your face. And Paul Washer, in many ways, is one of the good guys. But you see, that wasn't the issue. The issue was, For this particular individual, Paul Washer wasn't a balanced diet because it appealed to something within him to be controversial and in your face. And Jesus is the rock of offense. Yeah, Jesus is, not you. I said to him, what you need to do is, is find a different diet at the moment because there's something in your nature and your makeup that wants to be like this. So you found a teacher who's like that and he's making you more like that and you're becoming unbalanced. For a while, it would help you to listen to somebody who's a bit more gentle. Not compromising, but gentle and loving and kind. Because Jesus, the Jesus that I read about, And he goes, yeah, but Jesus turned over the tables. Yeah, he did. But he didn't do it every day. (laughs) He was also the guy that little children wanted to be around. He was the kind of person that desperate people would come to. He was the kind of person that a tax collector that the whole town hated would climb a tree just to get a glimpse of him. 
And Paul even says, I'll be all things to all men that some might get saved. And sometimes it's necessary to be in your face and non-compromising. And sometimes it's necessary to be quiet and gentle and loving. See, people, we need to give people the right medicine for the right illnesses. My daughter's studying psychology, and as part of a course, we had to watch a movie last night. And the movie's called Brain on Fire. Has anybody seen it? It's not a famous movie. But it's the story of a young girl who's just started working in the newspaper, and she starts uh, having um, catatonic episodes. She starts to have uh, hallucinations, big emotional swings, and she ends up in hospital being diagnosed with schizophrenia. And her parents go, no, we don't accept. We. And they're treating her for schizophrenia, but they think, no, there's something, something not right about this. Something doesn't feel right. And in desperation, they find one doctor who specializes in this very rare disease. And he meets with her and he finds she's got this other disease. She was about the 127th person in history to be diagnosed with this disease, which wasn't schizophrenia. It was um, an infection in her brain. And here's the problem. As long as they gave her drugs for schizophrenia and there's nothing wrong with those drugs, if you're a schizophrenic, those drugs can keep you from, from real harm. But for her, they weren't improving anything. Why? Because it was good medicine for the wrong illness. And when she was correctly diagnosed, they gave her the right medicine and she recovered. But here's the deal. In the movie, in, in her journey, she knows something's wrong. So you know who she goes to first? Dr. Google. And she goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, I've got bipolar. Doctor, I've got this. And she self-diagnoses, but she's not an expert. She doesn't have the qualifications to self-diagnose. And none of us, actually, I don't. Tony doesn't. We don't have the qualifications to self-diagnose what's wrong with us. Do you know why? Because Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitful above all else. So sometimes I talk to people and they're really hurt. And they say, I've been so offended and nobody loves me. And your tendency is, oh, they just need compassion. You know, the right, illness, the right treatment here is, oh, we do love you. I'm so sorry. You've... But actually... The problem might not be that they've been unloved. The problem is they might have been rejecting everybody and have a uh, heart of offense in them. And actually the right medicine is get over yourself. Right? Now if you say get over yourself and they haven't been loved, you'll kill them. But if you say shame, but it's because of a root in their own hearts, you will kill them. Because you will feed that which is wrong. So we need other people to give us perspective and diagnose us and tell us what we need in our diet that's missing. Like the British Navy in the olden days, when people were on long voyages, like a lot of the sailors ended up getting scurvy. They're like, what is this? We don't know what this is. We don't know what causes it. They had all kinds of ideas to fix it, and nothing worked until somebody discovered it was a vitamin deficiency. 
And if we just give them some vegetables every now and again, they'll be healthy. Somebody with the right knowledge had to come in and provide what was lacking in their diet. And Paul even says that in the book of Romans. In Romans 1, he says, Oh, how I long to come and visit you, that I can add what is lacking in your faith, that we might be mutually encouraged. And it's not a control issue. It's a care issue. It's a responsibility issue. And when it comes to the doctrines that are out there, the reason I use the, the chocolate cake analogy is this. There might be a million YouTubers preaching stuff. There might be a million books that you can read. But you don't know those people and they don't know you. I don't know the character of the guy that's writing this stuff. And character is important because we catch who people are, not what they say. And there's been too many scandals of uh, good Christian leaders and all of a sudden it comes out that they were living absolutely immoral lives. That's why a friend of mine, you, many of you know Adam Hellyer, he says, when people ask me to recommend an author, I only recommend dead authors because they can never disappoint. We already know. <laughs> yeah. But here's the deal. Just getting, your, just getting your doctrine from the internet is like picking a chocolate cake up off the streets. But the other thing is this. It's also like going to Dr. Google. Because Dr. Google can only give you what you've told it. And it doesn't know you and it doesn't have responsibility for you. The fathers in the house, the elders here, love you and have a responsibility for you. And so will take care to get to know you and diagnose you correctly. Just choosing what to read and what to listen to, it's like... The average Joe breaking into a pharmacy and saying, I'm sick. I'm sure this drug will be okay. Otherwise, they wouldn't sell it. How many of you would do that? And here's the challenge. Because we're arrogant, actually. All of us. Pride was the original sin. It was pride that caused Adam and Eve to say, what we've got is not enough. We've got... We've got communion with Jesus in the garden. We've got everything we need. But that one thing we're told we can't have, we want. And what we want is to be like God, deciding for ourselves what is right and wrong. And there's that little bit, even those of us who are saved and been serving Jesus a long time, there's still that little residue of that in our hearts that can easily take over if we let it, that I know better. I know better than my elders. I know better than my com leader. And you may, you may know the Bible better. You may be more intelligent. You may have been serving Jesus longer. But that's not the point. The point is God has ordained some people and given them an anointing and a responsibility for you. I know some pharmacists. I think I'm cleverer than them. I certainly know me better than they know me. But I will submit my opinion to them when it comes to drugs. Do you understand? that They've got an expertise and a gifting that I don't have. Maybe we go to, to a, a, a general knowledge quiz and I will win. But that doesn't really help me when I need to know what medication to take. I know some chefs who aren't that bright. But I'd trust them to make food more than I would. <laughs> You'd want them to cook for you before you, you wanted me to. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we've got to be humble in these things. 
because the vast majority of what is out there at the moment is not a healthy diet. And I've heard people say things like this. You know, you have the Spirit of God. You know the truth. You don't have to worry about deception because you know the truth. Anybody heard that preached? I've even heard an analogy. And I've even heard our, our elders give this analogy. You know, when you've got people who work in a bank, they don't teach them what a forgery looks like. They teach them what the real thing looks like. Have you heard that analogy? You know, it's not true. I don't know, it's not true. I worked in a bank for four and a half years. I was head teller. Do you know what they do? You are working with the real thing every day. So because you're working with the real thing every day, you do know what it feels like. You do know what it looks like. And, and sometimes you feel something, that feels off. Let me check it. But they also show you forgeries and say, these are the typical hallmarks of a forgery. It helps you spot the forgeries quicker. So sometimes you go, I don't know, this doesn't quite feel right. Oh, yeah, I recognize it. And so to know the truth is important and to be familiar with the truth and to work with the truth constantly is important. But it's also helpful to know the hallmarks of the forgeries. And you know, the Bible nowhere says, oh, don't worry about deception. You know the Spirit of God, you'll be okay. This is what it, the kind of things that it says. In Galatians 1, 6 verse 9, Paul warns us about those who would preach another gospel. All right, it's on the side. It says, I'm astonished, this is to a church, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you, some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally condemned, he says there. So Paul isn't talking about, he's not this cultic leader who says, obey me whatever I say. Okay, He's saying, I'm a guardian. I understand there are some people leading you astray. And if anybody leads you away from what we've taught you, let them be eternally damned. Even if it's an angel from heaven. Even if I teach you that. If I wonder, and Paul here is admitting there is a possibility that even he, Paul the great apostle, could wander from the truth. He's warning us how easy it is to wander from truth. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 to 4. I'm afraid... I'm afraid, he's saying, not, oh, don't worry, it'll never happen. I am afraid that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, the one we proclaimed, or if you received a different spirit, or if you accept a different gospel, he's saying, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid for you. And I understand that. Because there's many people in Josh Jan I'm afraid for. Because Satan wants to come and he wants to deceive you and lead you away from a pure devotion to Christ. And here's the thing. It won't look demonic. It will look angelic. 
Because Satan will deceive us. He's, he, he imitates an angel of light. He masquerades. He puts a mask on. A lot of the challenges we're facing as churches around the world with today's culture is satanic ideology is masking itself as love. This is the loving thing to do. It's loving to castrate children if they identify as a different gender. Think about it for a second. When we're talking about transitioning children, we're talking about castrating young boys for the sake of an ideology. But it's, this is love. It's not love. It's demonic. But Satan, and some of us see that, others were drawn into some of these things. We're drawn into false doctrines because they sound nice. Colossians 2.8. We don't have to turn there, but that's another warning. Paul, he even handed people over to Satan. He disciplined them out of the church and handed them over to Satan to be taught not to teach certain heresies. He said they shipwrecked their faith. They were in the faith. They were, they were following Jesus. And then they allowed false doctrines to creep in and shipwreck them. And having been shipwrecked, they want to shipwreck other people. Because, you know, deception is like drugs. When you get hooked, you want other people to join you. It's weird, eh? Drug addicts who wish they were free still want other people to join them. <laughs> and I've noticed this so often that when people fall into deception, they become the greatest evangelists all of a sudden. Suddenly they've got this passion burning within them to convince everybody of their point of view. Because deception is not a matter of your intellect or experience. It's a spiritual dynamic. And if you think you're clever enough or experienced enough not to fall for it, I want to say you're already in a dangerous place. Because Satan is a lot cleverer than any of you and he's been around a lot longer. And he knows his Bible a lot better than anybody here. And here's one of the controversial things that we in our day and age would say, ooh, that's a bit controlling. That's a bit like heresy. Ooh, that's a bit, ooh, I'm uncomfortable with that. In 1 Timothy uh, 1 verse 3, Paul writing to Timothy says, he's giving Timothy instructions and he says, I want you to command certain people not to preach certain things. So Timothy's going into churches. He's not even in that church. He's an apostolic delegate being sent out to help that church. And he's saying, I command you not to preach that. Oh, how can you do that? You can do that because you're jealous for the truth. You're jealous for the people of God. And there's a desire to present the people of God as a pure and spotless bride one day. So when elders say, we don't want you listening to a certain guy, we don't want the... We, we're not doing it to control. We're doing it out of love, like my parents were lovingly telling me to eat things that were healthy for me. 
And how many of you have had really little kids who'll eat dirt, dog poop? There was a a social media trend a couple of years ago of of teenagers eating Tide Pods. You know, the little washing machine tablets. It was the Tide Pod Challenge. Loads of them died. It's like, how stupid are you? But hey, TikTok says it's good, so let's do it. It's like, it's not just that we eat things that are unbalanced. We eat things that can kill us. And we don't want you eating things that will kill you. There's an analogy that's often been used. I'll use it again. Rat poison. Do you know what rat poison consists of? 95, 99% of rat poison is cereal. 95 or 99% of it is very similar to what you would put in your bowl with milk in a morning that is healthy. But they just add a little drop of chemical to it that is lethal. And that's often how Satan kills people in the church. And I want us to understand a significant thing here. In any preach, even me, believe it or not, when I preach, part of it is me. I'm hoping to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit. I'm hoping to give you 100% unadulterated truth. But unfortunately, the spirit of prophecy is subject to the prophet. It comes through this filter, and it filters through my bias. It filters through through my understanding, my limited view. And so when you listen to me, I hope that you receive it with gladness, but there may be bones that you have to pick out, like eating fish. But here's the thing. With fish, the bones are not poison. You can eat the fish. It's healthy. Ratex, you can't pick the poison out. And some people listen to stuff and say, oh, I can spit out the bones. No, you can't. And with me at least, if you wonder if it's a bone, we can come and have a conversation about it. And that happens often. People email me or phone me or message me and says, Mike, that thing you said, I don't get it. Or what about this? And we can work it through. You can't do that with somebody in the internet. You can't do that with somebody you don't know. Is this making any sense? Because when we as a church say things like, just for the time being, guys, let's just close the door to outside voices. Let, let's, not, let's not listen and read other stuff for now. Lots of us, because of our pride, something rises up and it's like that sign of don't touch the grass. I had no intention of reading any other books, but now you've told me not to. <laughs> yeah? How can you tell me not to read other stuff? We're not telling you, we're asking you. We're imploring you as parents in a sense. Just like as a kid, I had friends and I'd go and eat at their house. And I'd come home and go, why can't we eat what they eat? Well, that's their responsibility. In our house, we're responsible. And we're not saying we're never allowed to listen to anybody else ever. But for now, that we, we need that our values not be diluted by the voices of people who've got other values. And often values that aren't truly biblical. So when we say these things, we're not doing it to control. We're not doing it to um, 
spoil your fun or because we hate you. We're doing it because we want you to be healthy. And I would say this. I think there's healthy food, there's unhealthy food, and then there's poison. So I'm going to risk some upset now. I was preaching a similar preach several years ago, and I mentioned a couple of names. I'm going to mention a couple of names now. How can you mention names? Well, in the Bible, it mentions names. Because here's the thing. If I don't mention a name, I can give you all the things, and you won't join the dots. The hyper-grace message is another gospel. And I can go through it all, and you go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you'll go, and you'll listen to Joseph Prince, and many of you won't join the dots that that's exactly what I've been talking about. I'm telling you now, don't listen to Joseph Prince. He's a heretic. I say that unapologetically. I was preaching a similar preach, and people kept, what about, what about? And somebody said, I'm going to risk being hated here. Somebody said, what about Joyce Mayer? (laughs) Okay. And my response at the time was this. You know, for me, Joyce Mayer is like a McDonald's. It's quite easy to eat and enjoyable sometimes, and it won't do you any harm to have it every now and again. But I wouldn't make it my main diet. Yeah? Most of Joyce May's stuff isn't poison. Or hasn't been. I don't, I don't know a lot of stuff. A, a book, Battlefield of the Mind, is brilliant. When we open the door to reading other stuff again, and some of you are struggling with thoughts and depressions, then that's a, that's a good book. But even Joyce Meyer, in some ways, can undermine our values because there's an understanding there of a woman who's teaching and having authority over a man that can, it can feed something in us if we're not careful. Yeah? So, the other thing is this. Tony might be able to get away with eating a quarter pounder with a big chocolate milkshake. Right? <laughs> but because of his lifestyle, his genetics, his diet, everything else, he may, he may be okay with it but it may be the last thing somebody else needs. So we can't just have a widespread diet for everybody and say, we've got to look at you. What's good for you? What might kill you? Even in preaching, we've got to be careful because we've got to present the whole counsel of God. So, Paul warns us to be aware of the enemy's schemes. What are his schemes? Well, I want to just give some of the hallmarks of, of what heresy looks like. And I'm not, just, I'm not talking about the McDonald's now. Okay? <laughs> hey, I like McDonald's. I enjoy McDonald's. But let's face it, we all know if, we, if, if McDonald's is our staple food, we're in trouble. You know me, I love to eat little pieces of metal. Yeah, it's my staple diet. (laughs) So I'm talking the hallmarks of things that will poison you. Okay. So one one hallmark of, of bad doctrine and of heresy is that it has to somehow bridge the gap between God and man. So it either has to make God less or make man more. And many heresies do that. 
So Mormonism, for example, okay, and many Mormons call themselves Christians, they are not Christians because they believe that Jesus was once a man, not God, just a man like you and me, totally human, who lived on another planet somewhere. And because he was a good Mormon, because he was faithful to his father, when he died, he became a god, right? And then the god of, oh, oh, sorry, God was once a man, right? God was once a man who became a god, and then Jesus, because of Jesus' faithfulness, Jesus became a god. And likewise, if you and I are good Mormons and do everything that we should do, sorry, ladies, only men, we men can one day become gods ourselves of our own planets and our wives with us will become eternally pregnant and just pop out spirit babies to populate that planet. Now you laugh, but that's, that's the heart of Mormonism, which is saying God was once a man and Jesus was only a man and you can become God. Does that sound familiar? You can become like God. Have you heard that somewhere before? And so one, of, one form of heresies is to, to bring God law, to bring Christ law, or to elevate man. And a lot, of, a lot of heresies elevate man, the God within you. The hyper-faith doctrine, the word of faith movement, basically states this, that God put lots of laws in place in the world, right? Like the law of gravity. One of the laws is faith, and God is bound by the laws he created. Therefore, if I have faith and speak it out, God has to do what I speak. So God becomes my servant because of my faith. What does that make me? It makes me God. So it's not simply, you, you see, we've got to dig. Most of us just go, oh, it's just a bit extreme on the faith thing. Yeah, it is a bit extreme on the faith thing, but it's the root of it that is actually saying God is your servant. That's what will kill Another hallmark of heresies, and I could go on about that, but we've only got one night. When you go to court and you swear to tell the truth, what do you say? I swear to tell, right, if it's not the whole truth, it's a lie, and if it's, <laughs> turn left, you're going wrong. <laughs> We all need a spiritual GPS. <laughs> well, where do we go astray? Redirecting. If you leave something out, it's not the truth. And if you add to it, it's not the truth. And that's what many heresies do. They will leave part of the truth out or they will add to the truth. They will start adding ideas to the Bible. And that is so dangerous because you've got a scriptural foundation for these things. So the hyper-grace movement, do you know what I'm talking about? This, this, this pre Joseph Prince and some other guys that are preaching, and they say things like, there's no need to repent. If you sin, 
It cannot affect your relationship with God. And if you repent, that grieves God more than the sin. All, all these kinds of things. And what they're doing is it's not, it's not that grace is too extreme. It's that it's, they're missing half the Bible out. Because grace does forgive us when I've sinned. It does remind me I'm a child of God. It, my sin does not, at least at first, sever my relationship with God. But what they miss out is that grace also empowers me to say no to ungodliness and live a godly life. It misses that out. It tells me that I am seated with Christ uh, in heavenly places. It doesn't, and, and I've been made holy. It doesn't teach me that I'm still being made holy. And so it's not hyper-grace, it's deficient grace. They say the Holy Spirit will never convict you of sin. Because they take the Scripture and it says, the Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We're not the world. Which is a misinterpretation. But you look elsewhere, and the, the, the whole purpose of the Spirit is to remind me of the things that Jesus said, is to point to Him. How can it do that if it ignores my sin? The other thing that it does is it assumes that being convicted of sin is a bad thing. Tony, you're a married man. I'm sure this has never happened to you, but for many married men, there comes a time, occasionally, when they're aware that the wife is upset with them. And you just know, you just know you've done something wrong. And you turn around and you say to your wife, is everything okay? And she says, <laughs> and then you push and push and push. And eventually, when you go, please tell me what, I, I know I've done, what is it I've done wrong? And she'll say, if you don't know, there's no point in me telling you. That's how we know God is a man, not a woman. Because <laughs> God wants to tell us. And as a husband, let me tell you, it's not nice hearing you've made a mistake. It's not, it's not the most fun thing in the world, hearing you've done something wrong. But I would rather hear it in order to restore the relationship. And sin might not, at least at first, sever the relationship, but it's going to affect my intimacy. Just like if Tony, does, if he leaves his underwear on the floor, it's not going to mean he gets divorced but it might mean there's a little bit of lack of intimacy. And because intimacy is a good thing for both parties, I want to know what's, what, what is it, Lord? You see, David says, search me, O Lord. What is it? In, is there anything offensive? Show me. Show me what's offensive in me that I can, that I can get back into intimacy with you. And the hyper-grace guy's got, ah, but that's old covenant, you see. They're taken away from the word of God. They say that doesn't apply because that's the old covenant. And so you say, well, what about the words of Jesus? And they go, ah, the new covenant only started when Jesus died. So what he said before he died was old covenant and doesn't apply to us. And you go, yeah, but what about James? No, no, James was a legalist and that doesn't apply to us. Well, what about John? No, no, one John was written to Gnostics, so that doesn't apply to us. Can you see what they're doing is bit by bit, they're removing truth away and saying it doesn't apply. And you go, well, what does apply? The verses that confirm your doctrine. And that's called eisegesis, good Bible 
a good Bible interpretation is called exegesis, where I take the meaning out of the text. Eisegesis is when I've got a meaning and I put it into the text. It's like taking verses out of context. Like the guy who was trying to take the lid off a pickle jar. And he's going, he's trying to, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And his wife said, twist the lid, not scripture. (laughs) Because that scripture is Paul saying, I've known what it is to be, to have nothing. I've known what it is to suffer. I've known what it is to be content in all circumstances because... I can do all things. It isn't this declaration that everything's going to be good. It's a declaration that I can be content when things go to hell in a handbasket. But when we take passages out, when we remove parts of Scripture, we get into heresy. Like a a lady in the church, she was in an adulterous situation, and uh, we, we were really begging with her, pleading with her, trying to persuade her to come back. And she, um, she, she texted us a scripture. And the scripture was, I will never leave nor forsake you. So she was saying, even if I do this, Jesus will never leave me. Message back. Read the verse before that one. The very verse before that says, keep your marriage bed pure because the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Say, I will never leave you nor forsake you doesn't mean I will never discipline you. In fact, when I was a kid, if I wanted to do something that my dad would hate, I didn't want him with me. (laughs) My dad saying, I'll always know what you're doing, was not a comfort to do bad things. It was a warning not to do bad things. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's not permission to sin. It's a warning against sin. Do you understand? But as soon as we start taking bits of the truth away, we get a lie. We don't get part truth. Likewise, adding to the truth. And unfortunately, Bethel Church, Bill Johnson's guys, if you look at some of the stuff that they're doing, they're, they're, and I kind of almost understand it because they're in California. You know, everybody in California is either a lunatic or stoned or both, you know? <laughs> yeah, sorry, 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 all our partnering churches in California. <laughs> the remnant. But what they're doing, they're, They've got this doctrine which has been faulty from the start, but they're adding to it new age principles and trying to incorporate new age principles into the gospel. And as soon as you add, you're lost. And the problem is, Scripture is quiet about some things we wish it would speak about. And we can't go beyond Scripture. Because if we go beyond Scripture, not only do we get heresy, we get control, we get abuse. But these things result from a worship of the text, often rather than a worship of God. Do you know what I mean? So worship of the text is, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. But Acts tells us that the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Now, I'm not saying don't read, do you read your Bible, but the Bible without the Spirit won't bring life. 
It would just bring a set of rules. And many people approach the Bible as though it's a rule book and a law book. So here's a question. I've done this before, so some of you might see what's coming. If a man has a wife who commits adultery and he forgives her, then she commits adultery again and again and becomes a prostitute, is it a sin for him to divorce her? Why is it a sin for him to divorce her? Because the Bible says, I don't know the Bible does. Right. But Jesus said, if anybody divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness. Right? So there's a marital unfaithfulness clause there. So is it a sin for him to divorce his wife? The problem we've got here is you're debating the scriptures. You're not debating what's pleasing to the Lord. See, it might be permissible within scripture as a general principle. It might not be permissible for you as an individual. Can anybody think of a Bible character that happened to? Hosea. And what did God say to Hosea? Stay married, win her back. Even though the law, even though the Bible that you have says that it's permissible in general, it's not permissible for you. And as soon as we remove personal relationship from Scripture, we're worshipping Scripture rather than the author of Scripture. We can't go beyond the bounds of Scripture, but within those bounds, there are things that Jesus asks of you. Go into all the world, he says. Now, some of you have done that. (laughs) United Nations here. How many of you haven't gone into all the world? Are you sinning? Because that's a general principle. As God's people, we need to reach the whole world. Does that mean you as an individual have to reach the whole world? No, you have to be where God puts you. Misapplication of Scripture like this, applying the general to the individual and leaving the Holy Spirit out, is going to lead you into some really weird, cultic, heretical places. And the other thing that people do, people use um, search engines to create their theology. So a while ago, somebody asked me a question about a video that they watched. And in the video, it was a woman on YouTube teaching that nowhere in the Bible are we called the bride of Christ, except in Revelation. And it's not talking about the church, and she goes into this whole weird thing. He said, what do you think? So I just said, consider this. And I sent him about 20 scriptures just off the top of my head about us being the bride of Christ, but not in those exact words. See, she, I I assume, did a Google search, bride of Christ, found one verse, and went, look, it doesn't say, but what what else does it say? There's the parable of of the, the virgins. Long, there's the talk about the bridegroom. There's Paul saying, I long to present you. There's, even in the Old Testament, Israel is divorced because she's been an unfaithful wife. The picture of God's people being the bride is from Genesis to Revelation. But she's Googled a particular formula of words. Be careful with that. Be careful with Greek. Ah, oh, you know, this Greek word can mean this, 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 and this. It might do. Like in English, the word light, what does the word light mean? Light is the opposite of heavy. So there's an opposite of heavy hanging from the ceiling. 
I, I like that shade of, of blue. It's really the opposite of heavy. <laughs> I don't like a heavy blue. I like a, yeah. Oh, can I help you with your luggage? No, it's emitting, <laughs> it's emitting particles. No, come on. <laughs> Context determines meaning. And, the, you know, a classic one. Dunamis, the Greek word dunamis, is where we get the word dynamite from. So when you read that in the, in the Bible, it's talking about the dynamite power. What's wrong with that? They didn't have dynamite. They had no clue. Who invented dynamite? Alfred Nobel. Alfred Nobel invented dynamite, saw how destructive it was, and then created the Peace Prize. Bit of trivia for you. Did you know that? But he was looking for a word for this amazingly powerful thing he'd created and, and went back to the Greek, dunamis. Okay, let's call it dynamite. The word dunamis means power. You might as well say, oh, dunamis is where we get the, the word dynamo from. So when you see that word in Greek, it means there was a dynamo. No, you can't retro. So we've got to be careful with these things. These, these are how we, how we get into heresies. Joseph Prince Tried, tried a word study with the word repent. This is what he did. See if you can spot the subtle error. He said the word repent is made up of two parts. Repent. Pent as in penthouse, which is at the top of the building. And so to repent is to go back to your rightful place at the top. And you go, wait a minute. That is wrong on about 100 different levels. First of all, the Greek doesn't speak about penthouses. The Greek word is metanoia, change your mind. But even in English, pent can be a prefix for five-sided. Go back to five. Or it can be a pornographic magazine. Go back to your penthouse magazines. Yeah, it's like, it's, that's how ridiculous it is. But people get caught up with the charismatic nature and the persuasiveness of a preacher. And also because it's little nuggets, little chicken, McDonald's chicken nuggets that we like to swallow. <laughs> the, the, this preach is sponsored by McDonald's. This is subliminal advertising. <laughs> You're all going to go, go home and get a burger now, aren't you? <laughs> Rebellious people, I don't care. And here's my final point about, about heresies. One, one of the key elements of beauty is proportion. Yeah? Who, who's a beautiful person in this room? Damn <laughs> <laughs> made in God's image, fearfully and wonderfully made. Nothing wrong with him that a plastic bag and a blowtorch couldn't put right. <laughs> He's not the ugliest man I've ever seen. He just looks like him. <laughs> uh, okay, he's pretty good looking, right? Yeah. You, you wouldn't look at him and... and and vomit over your McDonald's. Well, yeah, he's, he's moderately attractive, right? I, I'm careful as a guy, but anyway. Because in general, things are in proportion. If 
his eyes were across here, or if his nose was twice the size, or his legs half the height and his body twice the height, everything would be out of proportion, and you'd think he looks weird, right? Beauty and proportion are interlinked. Thank you. Truth and proportion are interlinked. We've got to have truths in the right place and in the right proportion. When a truth, when, a, when an issue or a doctrine usurps its rightful position, it becomes unhelpful and destructive. So let me just use a, a good thing, right? How many of you believe that evangelism is important? Going to all the world, right. What if then we made that so out of proportion, we told everybody, you've got to go out into the world? And we sent you all out into the world. There wouldn't be fruit because there wouldn't be healthy churches to disciple people in. As much as the Bible says, go out to the whole world, make, it says make disciples. So not only do we need to get people saved, we need somewhere where they can grow. Ah, we, we, we've got to praise God. Yeah, we do have to praise and worship God. But if we forget all the other things, then we just become concert halls. Yeah? Worship's important, not the foundation. If you put something in the foundation that's supposed to be in the roof, you, as a builder, that's a bad idea, right? Things have got to be in proportion and in the proper place. And here's the problem. When we come to Christ, we are all out of proportion. We are messed up. Our thinking's messed up. The way we view things, the way we view relationships, the way we view authority. Even when I'm talking authority, some of you are twitching inside because there's something inside you that's out of proportion in that area. And we've got to disciple one another. And as elders, we've got a responsibility to disciple you into a more beautiful and exact um, reflection of Jesus. And anything that doesn't reflect Jesus needs to come into light. Every thought that sets itself up in opposition to Christ must be torn down. And so proportion is important. But in order to see things accurately, how many, how many of you know what an error of pa parallax is? Okay, scientists know about this. When you read an instrument, if you read it from the side, and the dial's here and the number's there, because the angle that you're looking at it from is wrong, you see the wrong result. And you get an error. You think you're seeing truth, but you're actually seeing something that's off from the truth. Let me try and illustrate that. Can I have three people, three volunteers, three fielders? This is the truth. You can stand there. That's the truth. We want to know where the truth is. This is the word of God, which aligns with truth, right? This is Mr. Christian. And he's here. So he's not in line with the truth and the word, but he doesn't know that. So when he looks through scripture, he's going to think the truth is over here. If he stood here, he's going to think the truth is over here. So how can he be sure that he's seeing where truth really is? Or more sure at least. Well, maybe what we do is we put another marker in. And we say, Spirit of God. Right? Now I'm here, and those three don't line up. 
right? I know something's out. It can't be God. It can't be the truth, because truth isn't relative. It's not brave to speak your truth. It's brave to speak the truth. And the alternative is your opinion. Okay? <laughs> so truth is truth. The Word of God and the Spirit of God who reminds us. So I've got to know now that I've got to come into line. And when everything's in line, I'm safe. And so just, thank you guys. Does, does that picture make sense? So just as with the GPS <laughs> that many of us use, how does that work? How does it know where we are and where we're going? It triangulates. I know it, it knows where it is. It knows where certain satellites are or, or um, cell phone towers. It knows their exact locations. And it pings, and then it knows... If I'm there, there, and there, I can triangulate my exact position. The way you triangulate your exact position is to triangulate. The Word of God, the Spirit of God, my leaders. If you've got those three things in place, you're in a, bit of, you're in a safe place. If your leader is obviously contrary to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, then find new leaders. If we teach you another gospel, May we be eternally condemned. And so what Scripture is constantly trying to do, it's God's messages, message to us saying, you're too far left, you're too far right. And if you're too far left, it's pushing you right. And if you're too far right, it's pushing you left. The problem is if I'm too far left, that's my preference, that's my default. I like the Scriptures that push me left. If I'm too far right, I like the scriptures that push me right. And so we get into more and more error. And that's what happens with, um, with a lot of heresy. It's just one or the other. It's not both. And the, the, the answer is not to compromise between the two. It's not a compromise between two truths. It's holding two extreme truths in tension. Can I give you some examples? Are you responsible for your choices? Is God absolutely sovereign? Are those things true at the same time? How do we reconcile them? Do we say, well, God's a little bit sovereign and I'm a little bit responsible? No. We say both are true. I may not necessarily know how it fits together, but you know, light travels as particles and it travels as waves. I don't understand that, but it's true. And we can't say God's a bit sovereign. We can't say I'm a little bit responsible. And something like hyper-Calvinism, which is unhealthy, because it keeps going, God's sovereign, God's sovereign, God's sovereign. And it forgets that, some people forget that there's responsibility. There's a man I came across who had two daughters. And he was so hyper-Calvinistic, he said, my one daughter's in the elect and the other isn't. In other words, my one daughter's going to heaven no matter what she does, and the other's going to hell no matter what she does. How do you grow up in a household like that? That is not the God I know. That's heresy. It's not even extreme thinking. And I'm not saying all... Calvinists are that, but people get so far. Has the kingdom come? Has it come or is it not? The kingdom has come. But it's also not. And we live in this tension. The kingdom has come, but it's also yet to come. And if we get that wrong, if, if we say it's come in its fullness, then we get this triumphalistic thing of we're going to take over the whole world, the so-called seven hills theology, you know, we're going to just rule. Yeah? 
And if, if we only have the other way, it's like, oh no, persecution and the Antichrist and the mark of the beast and we're all going to die. Let's just scrape our way to heaven. With healing, it's the same thing. If the kingdom's come in its fullness, then everybody's got to be healed all the time. If the kingdom hasn't come, then nobody gets healed until heaven. If you hold the truth's intention, God does heal, God wants to heal, but some of us will only be fully healed in eternity. We've got to hold this, and a failure to hold that intention gets the extreme healing doctrine. And you know the problem with the extreme healing doctrine? Is it leaves bodies scattered along the way of people who haven't been healed, who are told it must be their sin or lack of faith. And I go, well, what about this scripture? What about this scripture? Oh, no, 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 we don't. And again, you start removing truths. It's harder to hold the truth in tension, but it's necessary. Because if I'm somebody who has no faith and, and, and I just think, oh, I am a worm. I need more of this. And if I think, God is at my command and will heal everybody just because I said so. I need more of this. I need to be brought back in line. That's what the heresies do. They, they, there's somebody who's, who's missed something. And what they're saying is true, but it's not the whole truth. And that's the most insidious heresy of all. Like Scientology, I don't think any of you would fall for it. Scientology believes that many hundreds, many millions of years ago in the solar federation or the galactic federation, there was overpopulation. So they took all the spirits of people and froze them and brought them to earth in spaceships and dropped them in volcanoes. And then when the volcanoes erupted, it, it defrosted these spirits who then inhabited creatures. And then through evolution, eventually became man. And many of your problems are leftover memories of those spirits from when you were mollusks and whatever. That's Scientology. I don't think any of you is daft enough to fall for that, even if you like Tom Cruise. <laughs> it's so out there. But the subtler heresies were the found, the founded on an element of truth. But they will take you further and further away from the path. In Galatians, we see that happening with Paul. Paul's writing to people who they've got saved, but now they think they have to work to perfect their salvation. And he's going, who's bewitched you? And in Galatians 5, he says, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. So don't be yoked again by slavery. He said, and you can hear all the, all the, you know, all the guys who aren't into legalism going, yeah, preach it, Paul, preach it, Paul. Because some people have gone this way and they're thinking they're having to fulfill the law. But then 14 verses later, he says it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. Do not use this freedom to indulge the sinful nature. And all these people who are saying, oh, we, do, we have no law. We can do whatever we like. He's correcting them because they've gone this way. And he's bringing both sides into alignment with the truth. The challenge is we don't like being aligned to the truth. When Adam and Eve were told you will be like God, here's the problem. When you, think you, when you are like God, deciding for yourself what is right and wrong, God doesn't make mistakes, so he never has to change his mind. And when there's a little thing in us that is, thinks we are like God, we think we don't have to change our mind. The number of people I've sat with who've got heretical thinking, and they said to me, but Mike, that's just your opinion. I've got the truth. Why is it my opinion and your truth? <laughs> Likewise, I'll go to people and I'll say, listen, 
if you can persuade me of the truth, if I'm wrong, I want to know. I want to know now. I had two Mormons in my house. I didn't attack them. I said, let's have a conversation. If I find, Let's discover the truth. If the truth's what you're saying, I need to know that now, not when I stand before God. But we've got to love truth more than we love being right. And the problem is most of us love being right more than we love the truth, if we're honest with ourselves. Sorry, I'm coming into land. I'm just getting a bit passionate tonight. Guys, the reason I'm passionate, I've been serving the Lord. I worked it out the other day. The first time I ever preached in church was 40 years ago. I've been running this race a long time. I've seen lots of movements come and go. Lots of theologies preached. And things come up and people think it's new and it's not new. Even the hyper grace message is not new. It's an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. And I've seen the damage. I've seen people really deceived and dragged away from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. It nearly happened to me. I grew up in a church that became very licentious. I was a youth leader. I was being sexually immoral. I was going out getting drunk. But I was really spiritual. Because we didn't believe in heavy shepherding or being judgmental. And I've buried friends with drug problems and alcohol addiction and people with broken marriages and all kinds of broken lives that were on fire for Jesus. And some of it is just character. But so often, it's been messages that look good but are not the truth. That have shipwrecked, shipwrecked so many people I care about. We've got to remain in the radical middle. We need to be kept on the right track. You know, the gospel is beautiful. But it's hard to believe. Even for me, can I be honest? It's hard to believe that the creator of the heavens and the earth would choose to come to earth as a man and allow simple men to beat him, torture him, and kill him just so that I could be forgiven. I still find that hard to believe. I do believe it, but it is outrageous. And the gospel, the true gospel, is so outrageous, it's almost easier to believe these heresies that kind of change it around a bit. That actually I deserve to be forgiven because I was so amazing. That sin isn't that bad. That God is not that holy. I think that's probably one of the biggest problems in the church at the moment. Forgetting the holiness and righteousness of God. It's all God is love, God is love. God, is love. God was never called the loving one of Israel. Do you know that? He was called the holy one of Israel. Yes, he does love. He loves because he's holy. If there is an overarching attribute of God, it's that he's holy. And we don't hear that anymore. How incredible that a holy God would give himself for me. And then continue. I can't tell you how many times over the last 40 years I've failed. I failed as an individual. I failed as a leader. I failed as a boyfriend. I failed as a husband. I failed as a father, I failed as a friend, I failed as a son. 
many times? I couldn't tell you. And it is almost unbelievable. God still loves me and chooses to forgive me. That's why heresy thrives. Because the gospel in its purest form is just so mind-blowing. And like little kids that are drawn away by shiny things, the devil comes with shiny things to lead us away from what is truly valuable. And many of these heresies seem nicer, seem more tasty, seem more pleasant, especially when I put myself at the center, when I have a meology instead of a theology, when I read everything through the lens of how important I am rather than everything through a lens of how glorious and holy God is. How could God judge me for this? How could God expect me to do this? Man, get a life. You're a worm. You're forgetting how glorious God is and elevating yourself. That's why heresy is so appealing to us. It's appealing to our flesh because it finds a different way, an easier way, a more structured way, a more systematic way. But God wants relationship. And I think it's good for us regularly just to spend time and meditate on the purest form of the gospel in wonder and not think that we've grown too mature, too wise, or too educated to be blown away by the power of the gospel in its simple form. Karl Barth, one of the cleverest theologians, or, or not one of the best, but one of the cleverest theologians that ever lived, said the more pr most profound theology he ever heard was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If we remain as little children, with that at the heart, humble and teachable and aware of the devil's schemes in submission to those that the Lord has put over us to protect us and to teach us what a good diet is, we'll be much safer. And some people say, but didn't Jesus say, you will need no man to teach you? Yeah, the same Jesus who gave us to teach us. <laughs> and there's, a, again, a tension there. See, for some people, they need to hear you need no man to teach you because they won't have a personal conviction. They want to follow a pope or a, yeah, or a despot. Others of us need to hear the opposite because we don't want to listen to what anybody said. We're just rebellious and independent. And when those two are married, we see like the Israelites in the desert had the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, which represented the Holy Spirit. They could all see it. But God still used Moses and Moses tell the people where to go. Can you see that balance? God has given you the Holy Spirit as a personal thing to remind you of the truth and remind you of what he said and to bring you into all truth. But he's also given you his leaders to partner with on the word of God. Can we be a people who instead of trying to shift the truth or shift scripture or shift God so that I can stay where I am and be in alignment? Can we be a people who recognize God does not change? His word does not change. His spirit leads me into all truth. And if those things don't line up, I need to repent and change. That's what's needed.
Maybe some of us do need to repent. Maybe we've had a bad attitude. Maybe we've responded badly. Maybe like that don't step on the grass. When you heard don't listen to other stuff, you said, I've got to listen to what I want to. (laughs) Maybe you need to just reappraise what you're listening to, what you're watching, what you're reading. Maybe you need to submit some of what you believe to the leaders. You know, even Paul the Apostle, who wrote half the New Testament and planted more churches than any apostle that we read about. At the peak of his ministry, he says, I went down to Jerusalem and submitted my doctrine to the leaders there to ensure that I hadn't run my race in vain. If Paul the apostle could submit his doctrine, I don't think there's anybody here who's too big. And so I want to urge us where we need to adjust, adjust and love truth more than being right. And this might be a really difficult preach for people who've not been church before or who've been in church, but maybe some of might be visitors who've even been offended by some of what I've said and some of the names I've mentioned. But my desire is not to put anybody down. My desire is to lift Jesus up. And if you've never received Jesus, if you've never accepted the gospel, as I've just mentioned, that the God of creation came to us while we were rebels against him, while we were living for ourselves, while we were sinners and chose to die, that if we put our trust in him and give our lives to him, we could be forgiven. If you've never done that, then tonight's the night to do that. Because the greatest heresy of all actually is you don't need Jesus. I want to tell you, I need him, Tony needs him, and you do. If there's anybody here you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, I would urge you to do that tonight.